0: It's good to be together today, it's good to, uh, to remember the fact that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and to be reminded uh, that, that He is indeed a good God, and a gracious God, and a God who is always willing to save, as we look to Him this morning. Uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in your Bibles, if you're new to the Bible 1 Corinthians is a letter written to the church in Corinth. You can find it if you have a Bible in your table of contents or on your app, depending on how hip you are. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is where we are going to be once again today. This is our second week in this chapter. My barber said, I don't believe in marriage. This cord's going to get on my nerves here. I don't believe in marriage, he said. The idea that, that two people could come together for their entire life and actually be in love is just uh, ridiculous. And this old idea of just simply staying together because you're married, meaning the sparks aren't there anymore, we're just married and so we're going to stick it out, he says, is Passé. The typical pattern that he has experienced and many of us have seen and maybe experienced in our own lives, single girl meets single guy and they fall in love. She wants to be around him, he wants to be around her. Uh, For them, their their understanding of uh, a good day is a happy day. The goal in their life is to be happy. So let's just get through this day and let's be able to go to bed at night knowing that all is well in our world. That we have enough money in our bank account, that that we have enough food in the refrigerator, that we have good friends, that things are going okay with our job or with school or with family, that that life is just simply happy. And the next step now for single guy and single girl in pursuing happiness is... Marriage. And if you ask most people in our culture today, why do people get married? It's because people want to be happy. We marry for happiness. And then marriage begins. A few years into it, there are two kids that are driving them up the wall. There is a job that's keeping him out late. There are stresses. There's a mortgage that needs to be paid. An electric bill that is crazy. Refrigerator that you cannot cannot keep stocked. They've each put on 20 pounds. Hair is falling out in certain places. Hair is growing in other places. What used to be sort of the eternal torch of their love and affections for one another has dwindled into the empty f- flicker spark of a, uh, a cigarette lighter there's just not much left in the bedroom there's not uh the spark that once once flew um She frankly doesn't feel loved and appreciated throughout the day, and so she's not going to show love in the bed. And he doesn't get what he thinks he needs in the bed, and so the last thing on his mind is to make her feel special during the day. They don't actually verbalize it, but they think it. I'm not happy. I I, I was supposed to be happy in this life. We got married because I wanted to be happy and this was the next step. And I'm not happy. They each, in their own time, begin to realize that they could get out of this thing. And they should probably get out before more hair falls out. To make matters worse, um, over the years... He has stopped attending church. He's drifted from the faith. And she's scratching her head, confused. I don't know what we have in common anymore. We're completely different people. And on a rainy September afternoon, they find themselves in an office signing papers. Each of them has, a, in that moment, a, a deep sense of sadness in their heart. Yet they are promising themselves that this is the right thing to do, um, that life is indeed too short to not be happy. Life is too short to spend it with someone who doesn't make you happy, and so they, they split. Now that, we could say, is a pattern in some ways that we have uh, seen, experienced in our world, maybe in your own life. There are thousands of couples that rush into marriage believing the opposite of all that will be true. Nobody gets married believing that that's going to be their story. Yet we can look at statistics and see that that ends up being the story of a lot of people that get married. What happens? When when, when young guy and young girl go into this marriage... They believe that intimacy will never be their problem. They can't keep their hands off of each other. Every time they're together, they're like magnets coming together, burning with passion. They say, well, let's get married. I know one thing that, that won't be a problem for us. It's going to be the bedroom. We've got that, we've got that down. And then a couple of years goes by. Uh, he says, you know, I'm, I'm stressed. I'm working a lot. She says, I'm tired from being a mother and uh, frustrations begin to grow. They, they once believed, thousands of couple go, couples go into marriage believing that this is the next step in happiness, that I just, I, I, she says, I, I just want to be with him. I just want to grow old with him and I will never, 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 ever leave him. I can't imagine it. I love him so much. And he says the same thing, just in different words. They say, we have everything in common. Like I can't think of anything that we disagree on. I mean, there's a couple little things. Like like she's she's into this kind of music and I'm I'm not. But for the most part, like we agree on everything. We're like the same person. And then they get married. You see, thousands of couples rush into this covenant of marriage, believing this, believing that it's going to be smooth sailing. Believing that it's just natural. The way that they feel right now is the way they're always going to feel and they are going to have happiness for the rest of their life every day of the week. It's just going to be easy. Now what we see in verse 28 of chapter 7 is something that would make all uh, married people, anybody who's been married for any amount of time, smile. Look at verse 28. It says, The last phrase, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. Everybody say troubles. troubles. All right, all the married people in the room say troubles. troubles. Say it like Ray Lemontaigne: trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yet in this world, those who are married will have troubles. Single people, those who are married will have troubles. Not smooth sailing, not easy. But hard work. Let's 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 look at Paul's how he deals with 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 uh, with marriage. What what Paul? uh, Well, let me actually back up a little bit. On Facebook, uh, I I recently put a status a few months ago that said something like, "The reason a lot of pastors talk about marriage is not because marriage is the end-all, be-all of happiness, but because." A lot of people find themselves in a marriage uh, and they're not happy, and that's a big problem. In some ways, that's what we're addressing today. Now, this is how Paul attacks unhappiness in marriage, troubles in marriage. Look at verses 29 through 31. He says this, This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of the world is passing away. Now what is Paul saying here? Is, he, is Paul saying, hey, if you are married, I'm sorry, it sucks. Just pretend you're not. So if you have a wife, just like live your life as if she doesn't exist, all right? Is that what he's saying? Because if he's saying that, then he also would say he, he would also be saying, uh, "Pretend that you don't own anything in the sense of just ignore, like being a terrible steward of what you have." Or, don't, don't be a good employee at your job. Just pretend like you don't have a boss telling, telling you what to do." I mean, Paul has written elsewhere that dealing with the world is, in fact, a good thing. Like, we should work jobs, and we should work well, and we should work as unto the Lord. Paul has written elsewhere that possessions are good things, not a bad thing, resources that can be used for the glory of God, and so we should steward our possessions and our resources well. And Paul has written elsewhere uh, enormously um, enormously positive things about marriage in in most of his letters. So he can't here be saying, then, marriage is bad, so just ignore marriage your marriage. Ignore your wife and pretend that she's not even there. Uh, what is he, in fact, saying? There's a, there's a phrase at the beginning of 29 and a, another phrase at the end of verse 31 that sort of caps this, what I believe to be a, a poem or some, some type of hyperbole. Look at verse 29. He says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. Look at verse 31. He says, for the present form, everybody say form. The construct, the present form of the world is passing away. So, what he's saying is this everything that we currently know is passing away. All of the covenants that we have with one another, contracts, commitments, jobs, uh, possessions, even your marriage, even your singleness, everything that we have is passing away. And time is short. Jesus was confronted once by some Pharisees and they, they were trying to trick him and they, they gave him a problem and they said, imagine there is a woman who's been married to a number of different guys. Each one died and she married another one. Each one died, she married another one. When, when, when she gets to heaven, when they're all there together, which one is she going to be married to? And, and uh, I mean, it's a good question. Jesus' response is something along the lines, you guys have no clue what you're talking about. You have no clue what you're talking about. In, mer- in, in heaven, there is no such thing as singleness. In heaven, there is no such thing as marriage. As a matter of fact, he's saying marriage, what we have together, a union of two human beings on this planet in this life, is a glimpse into that reality. Marriage is not the thing that we're moving toward marriage is a picture of the thing that we're moving toward and so paul is saying this we are focusing so often on our or ver- on our horizontal problems meaning our problems with our our job the problems with our the stuff that we own or the lack thereof or our rejoicing, or our, our mourning, or the problems within our marriage. Paul is saying, what, what I want you to do, Corinthian church, is, is actually reverse this and look at the, not horizontal, but focus on the vertical. Focus on what is to come. Focus on the reality The time is short. Focus on the reality that everything as we know it is quickly passing as a vapor. Now, the the aim, I believe, of this passage and the goal of my sermon is this. For those who are in a marriage uh, struggling with happiness, those who may be married someday, I want us to see that we will only find true happiness, true joy, true contentment, in our horizontal relationship of marriage, when we look beyond the horizontal, when we look beyond the marriage, and we say this is passing vertical, the things of God, the glory of God. Let me, let me frame this for you. When I married my wife uh, ten and a half years ago, I married her because I wanted her to make me happy. Now, I didn't know that at the time. I can see that in retrospect. I didn't admit that to anyone at the time. I wouldn't have told you that at the time. But essentially, I married her because she made me feel some, some particular way. She made me feel special. She made, she made me feel happy. Um, I wanted to make her happy as well, but largely, even that was Part of my desire to make someone happy. And and so much of it was about me and my needs and trying to get what I can get out of my spouse. And so I went into marriage hoping that my wife would make me happy. Now after a few years of that, uh, we had a complete just marriage uh, um, overhaul. Just a, a complete shift in, in every regard. And... Uh, And I came out of that with a complete shift in my own thinking, in my own mind as to who my wife actually is, why we're married, and how I ought to relate to her in this life. And here's the shift that I made. This is not just, I thought to myself, a horizontal relationship between my wife and I. Something to just, you know, for this life, to make each other happy. But in all reality after this short life is over, I will see my wife, currently, I will see Jess, in, on the other side, in eternity, in glory, in heaven, in the kingdom that is to come. And when I see her there, uh, she's not just going to be my wife, but she is going to be my eternal sister. She is this sheep that God entrusted me with. She is this daughter of God saved by grace. And when I see her there on the other side of this life, I will love her infinitely more than I do now. And I will recognize her as the one that God gave me who I had most impact on one way or the other. For good or for bad. To spiritually encourage her encourage her, or to spiritually destroy her how well would I have stewarded that relationship? Paul says three uh, shocking sort of statements about marriage in this chapter to help us take our eyes off of the horizontal in marriage and to place our eyes on the vertical relationship between us and God, what is to come, the glory of God, eternity, and then I, so I want to look at that and I want to see how that speaks to our horizontal relationship with our spouse. Cool? All right. Number one, this is the first statement that Paul makes. It's in the first five verses of the chapter verses one through five. I'll give you the statement. Have sex to the glory of God. Have sex to the glory of God. Everybody say amen to that. Amen. Thank you. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's what they said. But because of the temptation of sexual immorality, should have, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does, do not deprive one another except perhaps for an agreement by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. And then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now there are a few reasons for sexual intimacy within marriage. Pleasure is one of them. Childbearing would be another. The reason that Paul lays down here sexual relations within marriage is uniquely uh, different. Notice first, right there in verse 3, Paul says that, that uh, giving one another, husband to wife, wife to husband, their conjugal rights, that's one way to put it, is not optional. But this is a command. In verse 3, he says, the husband should, the wife should. So one Corinthian husband responds to this and says, well, you don't understand, Paul. Like, uh, I, I work a lot and I just don't have a lot of energy and a lot of desire. And Paul says, I understand that's tough, but you should. Like, you've got to figure something out with your schedule. The wife says, My, uh, uh, by the time the kids are in bed, it's, it's late and I'm exhausted and the last thing I want to do is anything romantic and I just want to sit and watch TV or read a book. And Paul says... I, I'm not a woman, so I don't really understand that, but, but you still should. Like, fig- you've got to get creative, maybe. Work, work with your husband in some ways. Like, figure out how to get the kids to bed earlier or to turn the TV off or force yourself in some ways. Like, you, he's saying, this isn't, this, I'm not saying this is optional, but you should do these things for one another. And then he makes it, goes even deeper with it, and he says, wives, the, the husbands have authority over your bodies, The husbands essentially own your bodies. And so please them. Take care of yourself in such a way that shows them that you care. And then Paul makes a statement that is absolutely unheard of in the first century. It's the last part of verse 4. He says, and likewise, listen to this, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does next time you hear somebody say that uh, the Apostle Paul is anti-woman, slap them over the head with this verse. (laughs) Nowhere in ancient literature do you find something like that. There are thousands of statements in ancient literature which say something to the other effect of the, the husband having authority over his wife's body. But nowhere do you see that reversed except for here in the Scriptures, the Word of God. What does this mean? It means a few things. One, it means that God is just as concerned with the wife's pleasure. It means that God is just as concerned with the wife's own needs. It means that God is just as concerned with the man taking care of himself and also men preserving himself for his wife. As a, from a pastoral perspective, counseling situations, one of the greatest problems in the bedroom within, with married couples is that the man does not preserve himself, but he finds other avenues, which then leads him to not crave and desire his wife. No, your body... Every bit of you belongs to your wife. So, Paul, can we abstain? Like, is it okay? Like, we're just not for a while. We're just not. We're not that. We're not doing that. Look! Look how Paul responds to that. Look at verse five. He says, "Do not deprive each other, except perhaps for a limited time, that you might devote yourselves to." Prayer, and I think this has got to be, like, to some degree, said tongue in cheek. Like, who does that? Number one. Um, yeah, we're we're just praying so much. We, my wife and I, we haven't been, you know, doing the hippity jippity because we've every time we get together, we just we just want to pray, and and our prayers go so long. The night's gone by the time we say amen. Paul says, okay. I mean, if that, seriously, okay. If that's the reason, fine. Abstain for a limited time though, okay? And then when you're done praying, get on with it. That's essentially what he's saying. Now, I don't want to make light of that. I think it's very possible that you might truly say fast together. You might determine to to fast or to pray together. But but truly speaking, for a limited time, and then once it's done, get on with your bad selves, Paul says. Now, listen, Paul isn't a uh, sexual maniac. He's not a sex counselor, and he's certainly not writing a book on how to spice up your sex life. But friends, Paul is a pastor. And if we miss his spiritual intent for why he's writing these things, then we're going to completely miss the point all together. Look at the end of verse 5. He gives the reason for this. He says, Do these things continue? Don't deprive one another so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self control. Paul is saying, yes, intercourse is for pleasure. It is for childbearing. But also we must realize this. We are in the middle of a war. We're in the middle of a spiritual war and the enemy, our adversary, Satan, seeks whom he may destroy. And he is seeking to destroy you and your marriage there are evil spirits all around you seeking to tempt you seeking to discourage you seeking to pull you away from your spouse and that level of intimacy so that these spirits the enemy might destroy you and thereby then destroy the testimony of the gospel thereby destroy and make a mockery of what God has done in your life through marriage. Paul is saying, listen, don't deny, don't deny each other. Like You need husbands and wives. You should do these things. And here's why. It's because you have been given this other person to love. And part of, God's, part of your role in God's work here is helping them to be preserved in their faith, to not be tempted, so that they may be saved on that last day. This is a sanctification issue. This is a remaining in the faith issue. This is a not falling off, veering off the road into the deep end issue. This is saying, my wife is first and foremost my sister, in Christ who who, who I'm to love and to help and to preserve. My husband is first and foremost my brother in Christ who I'm given to, to help and to preserve in this way. Sex, then, is spiritual warfare in marriage. Relations in your marriage is a weapon that God has given you so that you may fight. Married people, fight well. Fight often for the glory of God. That's the first statement. Eyes off of the vertical problems. What is God doing in this world? Why has God given me this person? How, I, how might I love them? This is one way. This is one way to fight. Second one is this. He says, stay married to the glory of God. Look at verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband and the Lord should, and the husband should not divorce his wife. One of the most difficult conversations I've ever had is, was with a good friend of mine who had uh, left his wife in pursuit of another woman. After some time, he uh, repented of that and he turned back to his wife and she didn't take him back. According to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, it seemed that she was freed from that because of his adulterous relationship and she chose, and I think freely so, uh, to, to remove herself, or to remain removed, I should say, uh, from from that union, I sat with him as he was sort of reeling from this, and and he was discussing sort of next steps. What do I do now? And he talked about a future relationship, and I didn't know whether or not I should uh, uh, bring up First Corinthians, but I felt like maybe it was the best and loving thing to do. And and so in in a uh, particular way, I basically said, m- like friend. Um, if you can't be restored, uh, if you can't reconcile with your wife, according to the Scriptures, I think according to First Corinthians, you need to pursue celibacy. Why is it here that Paul is saying if this woman leaves her, so we're, we're guessing here that this is an unbiblical uh, break, meaning he hasn't cheated on her, um, he hasn't, Left her. This is her removing her herself from the marriage. Paul says, "If if this is the case, she needs to remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. Those are her two options." Um. Why is it? Marriage is is not just a horizontal. Marriage, we think of it like a triangle. Here's uh, husband, wife covenant with each other. They also now are covenanting with God. So this isn't just a horizontal relationship, but marriage now is sacred. Marriage is holy. Marriage is very spiritual. Marriage is a coming together of two people as one. It's it's oneness. It's unity. Let no man put asunder what God has placed together, you see. And so the break then of that covenant the removal of that covenant would free her in a sense but in God's providence this 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 husband or this wife is still bound not free this is the nature of what marriage is marriage is a, it's huge marriage is a life Long covenant with the other person. Now, of course, there are uh, some instances in which there's a, what you might call a biblical divorce or a, a freeing of that covenant. Uh, in Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about the, in the case of adultery, you are freed. You could remarry. You're, not, you're no longer bound to that person. In the case of, uh, yeah, actually here in verse 15, I believe, uh, if, if you're married to an unbeliever and they leave, he says you are freed in that relationship. But in a sense, and I'll use this word lightly, if you're like the guilty party in a sense, or if you're the one you have left, you've removed yourself from this marriage, Paul says you're bound. You're making a mockery of what this thing actually is. The point is this. This isn't just like some legalistic standard. This isn't just a rule that's given to us and, and, and some kind of weight that's heavy and, oh, I'm not allowed to do this now because of, because of this situation. It's, it's something much more than that. Marriage is a picture of God's love for his bride. So when you look at a married couple, what you should be seeing is a small glimpse into the kind of love that God has for humanity. Marriage is a picture of the, the groom who is coming to, to save and to redeem and to keep and to marry the bride, and the groom has a love for the bride, and they have a union that will never be separated, be, break. It is one that lasts forever. Forever. And so then we enter into marriage frivolously and we remove ourselves from these marriages carelessly. What we are doing every time is we are actually lying to the world around us about who God is. We're lying about God's love for his bride. We're lying about the, uh, the eternal, unending nature of God's saving love for humanity. You see, God wants us to to be faithful in our marriages, not legalistically, not just because we have to, but because our marriages in some fashion proclaim the goodness of Christ. We are removing our eyes from the horizontal and we are saying, what is God doing in this world? How does our marriage fit into what God is doing in this world? Now let's be faithful to that. That's the second statement that Paul's saying. The third statement he's making is this. He's saying, if possible, stay married to the unbeliever to the glory of God. All right. right, so a little nuance here. First, stay married to the glory of God. Now, stay married, if possible, to the unbeliever to the glory of God. We see this in the next few verses. Verses 12 through 14. He says, to the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any man has a woman who, is, uh, uh, who has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are Holy, but if the unbeliever separates, let it be so. Verse sixteen: For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? In Corinth, it was very likely that a couple would be would would uh, would be pagan. All right, first generation Christians. So you have a bunch of pagans in Corinth, and one of them, let's say the uh, the wife repents and believes the gospel of Jesus Christ and now finds herself a Christian. Now she finds herself in a marriage that is what we would call unequally yoked or married to a non-believer. A good question that she might be asking at this point, what do I do? Something that may have been prevalent, we don't know this, but it's possible that maybe uh, Christians were leaving their pagan spouses in pursuit of a godly man. In pursuit of a godly woman, what do we do? We find ourselves now in a marriage, one of the I mean, the most intimate union of all, and we don't even share the gospel of Jesus Christ. What do I do? Paul is saying, if they consent to live with you, meaning like if if they'll put up with you, so they're not walking out because you have repented and believed the gospel. They're not walking out because you would like them to do the same. So they are are willing to remain with you. He says, if that is the case, then stay with them. Why? He says, because you being with them, wife, you being with him, makes him holy. And it makes your children holy as well. Now what does that mean? It It doesn't mean like a moral kind of holiness, meaning meaning uh, wife, you're married to an unbeliever and just simply because you're married to him somehow morally purifies him and ushers him into the kingdom of God. Or somehow morally purifies and saves your children and ushers them into the kingdom of God. But what that word holy means is, is that sense of being set apart or consecrated. Meaning, the wife who's married to the unbelieving husband has set apart or consecrated this man in a way that no other men are consecrated outside of this kind of marriage. He is now set apart to hear the Gospel of Jesus Christ often. He's set apart to to live in a house where the grace of God flows freely. He is now more likely to become a Christian than if he was not with her. And same with the children. The children are set apart. They're consecrated to be in this house to be blessed in such a way to have a a godly parent who is teaching them the Gospel and they are now more likely to repent and believe that Gospel as they grow older. So he says, "If, if possible, if they're willing to stay with you, then stay with them. Now, when we read verse 16, we see that it might even be God's intent for this to be the case. Look at verse 16. He says, uh, verse 16, I urge you, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter. No wonder I was confused. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? What he's saying is, is you have no clue what God is doing in your marriage. Uh, King, one of our former interns, here at the church, he grew up in, uh, uh, involved with gangs and uh, had his very own flesh and blood brothers involved with him, very close relationships. Early on in the internship here at the church, one of the challenges that King faced was, uh, uh, first, why is it that God saved me and not them? So here I am doing an internship At a church, saved by the grace of God, growing in His grace, and my brothers seem to be on a spiral. Why is it that God saved me and not them? And now what am I supposed to do? So do I just like leave them behind? These are my my brothers that I grew up with that I love. Do I just leave them behind and now I have a bunch of Christian friends and I'll just do stuff with the church all the time and, and I don't interact with them anymore? Like, What do I do? What gave King hope and what sort of turned his mind around on this was when he realized this. The normal way that God saves people is through families. The normal way that God saves His people is through the family. Meaning, King, why is it that God saved you? Do you think... That God saved you and has no intention of doing anything in the hearts of your brothers? Do you think that God would rescue you from this, from this world and leave behind now this whole, uh, this whole pond of people that, that you have influence with and God has no intention of using you in their lives? King. God's probably going to do something in your brother's life. I don't, I, I, otherwise, I don't know why God would have saved you. Right? Now granted, God does what God does. And if God wants to save one, He will. But the normal way, the normal patterns that we see through history and even in our own lives is that God saves through families. I've seen this happen with couples. A confused marriage... And God now uses that to bring about his ultimate purposes in the lives of all. You might find yourself then in a marriage with an unbeliever. You entered into this uh, this marriage and and, uh, uh, at some point you became a Christian and your spouse has not. How do you know that it's not God's design for them? This is not God's intent so that they may be saved. Or maybe you're in a marriage and when you, when you were first married, you both claimed to be Christians. But after some time, he began to drift and he fell away from the faith. And now he doesn't claim the faith and he doesn't call himself a Christian. How do you know that this isn't uh, uh, your uh, assignment from the Lord? That God hasn't placed you into this relationship with this man for this purpose. So that he might continue to be set apart, consecrated, to hear the gospel and to see the testimony of the gospel lived out. So that he may be saved on the day of the Lord. Paul is saying, look, if possible, stay with the unbeliever. Now, what is Paul doing here? What he's doing is this. He's saying that your happiness in marriage is first and foremost not the goal. So, I'm, we're, not, we're not together anymore. There's some faith disconnect. There's, there's some issues. And Paul's saying, listen, I, I get that. I hear that. My heart breaks for you. I want you to have happiness and joy. But you're just seeking fleshly happiness in your marriage is not the goal. We have to take our eyes off horizontal, this hyperbolic statement. Like, pretend that you you, uh, uh, live as if you don't have a wife. Meaning, focus on the vertical. Focus on what is to come. Focus on the eternal. And now watch how that transforms your relationship in the horizontal. This is about not your happiness. This is about your holiness. This is about not what you can get out of the other person. This is about the glory of God and what God is doing in this world. Now, my my point with with these three statements is to show you that while marriage is indeed in the here and now, marriage is ultimately not about the here and now. You see what I'm saying? So yes, it it, it is something that we have now. It's a form of this world. But it's not about this world. It's actually something that God has blessed us with so that we might see vertically, so that we might truly find not temporary happiness, not fleshly happiness, but as we focus on what God is doing in this world, we find true and lasting joy that we never would have found any other way. As we live in our marriages for the glory of God, as we live so that our spouse might cherish the Lord, as we live so that God's people might be saved, we begin to find a joy that exceeds beyond the happiness that we thought we were getting ourselves into. God is not robbing you of your happiness. God is all about your joy. He is for your joy. And God knows that you will have most joy when you focused on not the form of this world, but on the world that is to come. Let me just give you four closing thoughts. Number one, I am my first marriage problem. It's me. Meaning the horizontal says my wife is the problem, my spouse is the problem, the issues is the problem. What we're saying here is is as we look away from the temporary forms and we look vertically, we say, wait a second, no, I am my first marriage problem. It's not my spouse that's the issue, but it's what, what I'm trying to get out of my spouse that is the issue. I need to look vertically and see why it is that God has me in this relationship. Number two, indifference, will erode your marriage. The person who carelessly enters into marriage believing that it will be as it always is. And you find yourself lazy. You find yourself saying, hey, this isn't easy. Sex isn't easy anymore. We have to work at this. I feel like if we have to work at it, then it's fake, and so I'm not even going to work at it because it should just come naturally. No. Marriage is hard work, and laziness and indifference in your marriage will erode Your marriage, to live, quote, as if you don't have a wife means that you live with eternity as your aim. And then that therefore means it's going to be a lot of hard work. Number three, thousands of couples enter into marriage looking for happiness. Friends, you won't find it if happiness is your goal. But if you enter into marriage looking for holiness, looking to grow in holiness, you will often find both. Number four, you are worse than you realize, but you have been given all that you need. Meaning this, you are utterly unprepared to spend your life with another person, you don't have what it takes. You don't have what it takes to forgive. You don't have what it takes to be kind. You don't have what it takes to be about the other person, to serve the other person, to love the other person, to cherish the other person. You don't have what it takes. Your heart is more sinful than you realize. You're more selfish than you realize. But according to verse 7, it seems that God has already given us all that we need. You see, this is a grace gift. God has already given you what you need in life my single friends we spoke about this last week if you find yourself single God has given you what you need to be faithful during this season and those of you who find yourselves married God has given you exactly and more than you need to be faithful in your life and maybe that is where we begin maybe that's where some of you really have to begin You see, we have idolized our spouses. We have tried to get out of them what we can only get from God. We are selfish. We are all about our own happiness. And you have not been loving your spouse, your husband, or your wife as that eternal brother or that eternal sister who you will know for all of eternity. The one person that you have most impact On in this world you have more sin in your life and in your heart than you imagine your heart is darker than you've ever realized you are more deserving of the fires of an eternal hell than you've ever realized but what you find is this every time we look to Christ what we find is this There is more grace in Christ than there is sin in us. There is more forgiveness in Christ than there is sin in you. There's more restoration in the Lord than there is brokenness in you. And for all who turn and see the cross, and see our sins that were atoned for that day as Jesus died on the cross, and the hope that we have in His resurrection, and the fact that He is risen to be the judge of the living and the dead, and we look to Christ and we say, help me, and we, we put place our trust into Him, and we turn from our idolatry, we turn from our selfishness, we turn from our pursuit of fleshly happiness, and we look to Him, we always find grace. We always find everything that we need. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you help us to look to Christ, that we rely on the grace of Jesus Christ for all that we need. Our, our, our uh, marriage issues, our singleness, singleness issues, all of the horizontal problems that we face in this life, let us see vertically. Let us know that Jesus is enough for us and let that transform all of our other relationships. And God, I pray that that person who is here today, who, who uh, is, is uh, just overwhelmed with guilt, uh, they uh, are realizing that they indeed are broken and are in need of a Savior. I pray that they turn to Christ this morning, that they look to Jesus and that they find a, a new life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.